0: Welcome to the Development Policy Center podcast. My name is Camilla Burcott. I'm a research officer at the Development Policy Center. And I'm very pleased today to be sitting down with Dr. Eric Goosby, who is the UN Special Envoy on TB. Welcome. Thank you for coming.
1: Thank you. My pleasure.
0: Um, I thought maybe to begin, you could just uh, explain what your role is as as UN Special Envoy on TB.
1: Sure. Well, thanks for for having me. I think that um, the um, UN... Uh, is a organization that has um, many different agendas and focuses of, at, of activity that are not um, coordinated that tightly. And um, I think that as issues arise, or as issues uh, uh, get neglected, the Secretary General tries to Uh, emphasize them in one way or another, either within their administrative management system or by kind of putting uh, a layer between the secretary general and the directors of agencies that can um, cross issues, concentrate issues, bring attention to issues. They run the gamut from um, political attention (laughs) like a noted person, celebrity would bring uh, to um, uh, people who have more of a technical background in the area, and then people kind of in between. So you see a whole spectrum of types. I think that uh, I was appointed under Ban Ki-moon, and his uh, uh, hope was that the countries that I already had established a relationship through my work with HIV... um, would be the same countries that needed strengthening help in their TB response. Plus, there's a co-infection relationship with HIV. Uh, Most of the increases in uh, TB globally are, in one way or another, connected to the HIV population, especially in the developed settings. And because of that, um, I think uh, um, my hope is we've... uh, been able to uh, look at those areas that carry the largest burden, try to understand their current response, and are in the process of trying to bring uh, technical assistance support and um, attention to uh, the political leadership uh, to continue to see this as an important problem that's impacting their population that they should invest in. Mm I think that the um, threat of economic instability, uh, decline, uh, will come through a weakened workforce. That uh, TB uh, tends to um, uh, take your kind of 15 to 50 year old age group as the predominant group hit, but it hits any age group. Mm -hmm. But in terms of those who mostly are out and about and get infected, and I think um, there is an economic threat that is uh, looming. And uh, I think that the tragedy of tuberculosis is that uh, it also raises issues around human rights and equity, disparities uh, better than most diseases do. do. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think um, having a disease that you can prevent, diagnose, treat, and cure 90% of the time and delivery systems have not found this to be the priority that it should be uh, in standing up and sustaining that kind of response, is really a tragedy. Mm-hmm. So, I hope that uh, we're able to raise that awareness and uh, make the uh, allow people who need it to benefit from the science that we already know. Mm-hmm. In, in addition to um, kind of where we are in the state state of care uh, for tuberculosis, you know, these drugs that we're using are old. They've been around a long time. You have to take four of them for, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, two for six months and two for four months and four for two months. And it puts a burden on delivery systems to keep track of all that just in general. But it's um, mostly that the drugs that are used have side effects that are and can be life threatening. Uh, As you move above 35 years old, uh, some of the uh, most effective anti drugs can cause um, liver damage that can kill you, and you can't predict who that person's going to be. So uh, it presents a challenge to management that you need to keep on top of it. Um, Not hard to do when you develop a system that's prepared itself to address those issues. Mm -hmm. But it's not the kind of disease that you can just kind of pop in and out of a primary care system without real preparation. Easily prepared for but you need to prepare for it. The the, um, idea that it's an inpatient treatment versus an outpatient treatment, uh, the drugs in the uh, 50s really pushed it into being an outpatient treatment mostly. Uh, But strategies to keep people on care for six months, which is all it requires as compared to HIV, which is the rest of your life, uh, is um, a challenge to every single medical delivery system I've looked at. So it's harder than it seems. (laughs) Um, But I do think um, that we have the evidence base to hit all of those needs. We just need to put it together and, again, maintain the political will to sustain it. Mm.
0: Well, thank you. That was a great overview of of all the issues. And it sounds like yeah, yeah, you've got your your work cut out for you in, in this yeah. role. Um, perhaps we could talk a little bit more, um, you could give us a bit of an overview of actually the burden of TB in, in our region, in the Asia-Pacific region.
1: So um, you uh, are in a region that's in flux in terms of our understanding of just the burden of disease. Uh, prevalent studies that take, you know, four to five years to do and are very millions of dollars expensive, like 10 to $15 million to do one. Um are um, labor intensive and require an analysis of the data that delays uh, your findings from when you collected it. So people are always kind of reminded, you remember that thing you, you, you did? Well, here's the results of it. So it's never really served as a momentum generator, a prevalence study. Mm-hmm. They're always after the fact and they're usually to validate numbers that people have already used, budgeted off of and moved on. So making them more immediate and relevant is, is important. Um, but the data is coming in in Indonesia and the Philippines that show, uh, you know, 20 to 35, 40 percent increases in the number of people that are in those regions, in those countries that are um, carrying TB, active disease. Uh, it's not that there is an expansion of the number of people. It's that we're counting them for the first time. But it tells you that the burden is much greater than was anticipated and is being responded to, even though the response is underneath the uh, expected, you know, the the current burden of disease has a response that isn't what it's need, Mm -hmm. what Mm -hmm. the needs demand. It's underneath that. But this just makes that disparity worse. Mm -hmm. And I think getting a handle on that is going to be critical uh, in the next few months, to understand the, the new numbers. But what's clear to everybody is that the response is under the need, and that these countries in the region need to start thinking about how collectively you can um, understand your burden of disease and share uh, the responsibility to respond to it for countries that are stronger to support countries that are weaker not only in resources, and resources are important, Uh, we need to put more resources into this for sure, but also in technical assistance training, uh, uh, pre-service training, as well as post Mm -hmm. uh, the use of mid-level providers and the need to engage the community in concretizing and solidifying the response, especially in identification, outreach, and retention strategies. So... um, it's pretty much across the board need, uh, and I think that it would be a real contribution, not only to the region, but to the planet, if countries in the region, like Australia, position themselves to convene, uh, move through these challenges, and come up with a strategic uh, plan strategy that addresses them. Uh, I'm hoping that uh, the leadership in your country will see this as something that's uh, not only needed but uh, uh, in their best interest, both on a uh, humanitarian level but also um, a uh, health and security level for Australia to make sure that individuals who are suffering from, again, a disease we can cure, uh, have the opportunity to get in front of the treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, It also is something that I think um, allows for disparities to be acknowledged. Uh, The intellectual honesty of acknowledging uh, individuals who have not benefited from uh, the science uh, for one reason or another uh, to be uh, characterized, kind of counted uh, and accommodated by leadership is an act of leadership. And I think that opportunity is clearly in front of Australia now.
0: Mm. Um, one of the things I was interested to ask you about was um, co-infection TB. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think the, the you mentioned earlier the interactions with HIV and co-infection with mm-hmm. HIV mm-hmm. is quite um, widely known. I know you, previously you were the um, US Global AIDS Coordinator, and so you have mm-hmm. really seen that interaction a lot. Um, but particularly in the Pacific region, I know that we're seeing um, a lot of issues with non-communicable diseases and and particularly TB, and diabetes, co it's has, mm-hmm. has been an issue. I'm wondering what if you have any comments on what needs to be done to address that. Do we need to? How do we need to um, mm. to look at that and to start to deal with that?
1: Well, I think as a global community, we need to acknowledge that uh, uh, infectious disease still are the things that kill the largest number of people on the planet. If you kind of eliminate. Uh, accidents and motor vehicle accidents. And, um, but when you look at the uh, infectious disease burdens, these are the large killers. But um, those individuals who have tuberculosis and have HIV uh, are getting stabilized or cured and are coming up with hypertension, diabetes, and coronary artery disease. Uh, the wave of uh, obesity that uh, has seen, was seen in the developed world is happening in the uh, developing world, but it's happening at a age group that's 15 to 20 years younger. Mm-hmm. So instead of in uh, 50 to 60 year olds, you're seeing in 30 year olds, 35, 40 year olds, at the same level advancement as you see in an older person in a developed setting. No one really knows why that's the case. Uh, there are theories that go from, uh, it's not genetics, uh, those same genetics that travel to Europe or the United States don't show this. Mm-hmm. But um, but the stress differences that uh, people are under is was what people think is going to be the key. The cortisol levels you maintain uh, as an individual who's immigrated into an area or is dealing with uh, issues of uh, uh, security around housing and food, uh, when you have uh, people who's uh, immediate environment is politically unstable, and no one can kind of uh, get a perspective on it to kind of uh, allow you to plan and make plans for your family. Uh, it raises the level of stress in your daily life so much so that you don't perceive it as stressful. You, it becomes the new norm. But your cortisol levels in your body are two to three times the level that they are if you uh, aren't under that background stress. You see the same kind of thing in bus drivers and um, uh, in large urban settings. The, the, the fact that they're in a stressful job having to go through traffic, they carry a higher cortisol level. Soldiers in the military on deployment, you know, the same mm-hmm. thing. So it's a phenomenon that's well uh, described. But when you're chronically under that stress, we don't have a whole lot of data to look at people who are under uh, increased levels of stress for years.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: that causes insulin resistance and you push a whole group of people into not accommodating elevated glucoses with secretion of insulin to move the glucose into the cell and feed your cells. So you have a pre or a diabetic that you've created because of that. And, um, and that association has been pretty well described as being further worked out. Uh, and, um, so I think that's what you're referring to. Mm,
0: that's fascinating. Yeah. Um, I always find it interesting when you find these examples where you can think about sort of these high-level structural issues. So, yeah, I was saying mm. migration, governance. Yeah, yeah. Things, and it comes all the way down to people's physiology. It's, yeah, I know. That's fascinating.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, when you think about it, humans only have so many ways to react to to everything. You mm. know, it's like... <laughs> 10 fingers, 10 toes, and and your, you know, kind of physiologic response. And you just keep using those same tools over and over again, even though the stressors change. Yeah. Um, but um, so I think it's a legitimate thing to think about. Uh, infectious diseases now moving to NCDs as the dominant disease that delivery systems need to be able to accommodate. Uh, and in kind of an integrated primary care kind of health package is where the planet needs to go Um, the big killers the infectious diseases need to be taken care of and not stopped it's not going to be check that off the list we've done that it's going to be a a concerted effort to catch up once caught up we need to maintain and that means continuing uh, both identification and treatment efforts But perhaps uh, if we're smart about this, being able to not have to do it to the entire population, but to move to groups that we identify as at higher risk. So um, I think um, the evolution of the delivery system's response is something that we can look to that will change the need, but also change the resources needed.
0: Right, yeah. Um, Something else I wanted to ask you about is antimicrobial resistance, um, which is something that I think is really starting to come onto the global health agenda. Um, I think last year at the UN General Assembly there was a big meeting on AMR. And then I understand just earlier this month uh, there was a a summit held in Berlin with the G20 health ministers. What if you could tell me a little bit about that summit and what its significance for the fight against TB?
1: Well, I think that this is a... um, uh, a real uh, a common need, a common uh, goal in identifying antimicrobial resistance as a problem. The um, a study that was done by, the, uh, by O'Neill uh, put a lot of emphasis on inpatient antibiotic resistance, which if you're uh, a physician uh, working in and out of hospitals, you see a lot of that Uh, But the largest killer, as you've alluded to, in antimicrobial resistance is the individuals who die from multidrug-resistant TB medications, the anti-mycobacterial drugs that are available developing resistance to them. About a third of people who die from antimicrobial resistance on the planet are from TB. And it raises it to the top of the list in terms of concern. Uh, I think that... um, We need to acknowledge that uh, we understand parts of the development of multi-drug resistant TB, but not all of it. Uh, It's clear you can develop it by the uh, organism actually trading, giving, feeding genetic material to the next generation and acquire that way. Uh, You also can acquire it by taking uh, the medications for drug sensitive TB incorrectly. Mm -hmm. So you have two mechanisms feeding the development of multidrug resistant. Uh, The uh, treatment for it is uh, really hundreds of times more expensive. It's a 50% chance of success, 50% chance of death. Uh, And as you get more resistance, acquire more resistance, it drops down to about 20% survival. So um, the costs skyrocketing, the threat to the patient, the person, uh, and the spread of a aerosolized organism that uh, has a good chance of killing you just by you being in the wrong line or, you know, in, mm-hmm. in, a, in a play or a movie or a store. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody coughs, you inhale it, and away you go. Um, the uh, presence of diabetes impairs your ability to identify that organism on first exposure and clear it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, uh, so does HIV. Uh, so does malignancies. If you had a lymphoma or uh, had chemotherapy uh, or um, or if you were pregnant, uh, interestingly, in the third trimester of pregnancy, uh, your immune system wanes uh, by about 40%. So women pregnant bloom in their last uh, trimester with active TB. Uh, so it's a real... Uh, uh, Smart organism, it figured out how not to kill mm-hmm. its host to live in it as long as it can, uh, but at the same time it's figured out how to move within the host kind of in a uh, under the table way uh, very effectively so um, so I think that uh, our ability to um, uh, deal with the antimicrobial resistance challenge is going to require. Um, a response that goes to the countries that are most heavily burdened. Uh, The G20 falls into that category. Uh, And uh, the O'Neill Report recommended that a fund be created that would stimulate innovation in new drug discovery, new diagnostics, but specifically for the AMR agenda in new drug discovery to Uh, get drugs that people aren't resistant to in queue Mm -hmm. uh, by pharmaceutical companies who right now don't have a financial incentive to take the leap into the r&d costs so this idea would be that those countries most heavily burdened would put up a fund that could supplement that uh, that drive
0: um interesting well it sounds like yeah there'll be plenty of developments there hopefully going forward um I'm interested in is someone who works on a global level and travels to lots of parts of the world and has has this quite unique perspective in that sense. Um, your view on how Australia can be most effective in supporting the fight against TV? You know, do we is it about putting more resources up? Is it about putting more, uh, getting more political commitment? What do you think we need to do um, to help support the fight against TV?
1: Well, um, I think that Australia has a unique opportunity at this particular moment. The global narrative has shown um, countries, mostly talking about donor countries, the uh, effectiveness of making a large investment against a single disease, that those types of investments actually can very dramatically impact the number of new infections, And the suffering that those diseases generate in the person infected and the community, people around them. Um, The Global Fund for HIV, TB, and Malaria, uh, Gavi for immunizations, uh, bilateral programs like PEPFAR uh, have uh, been breathtaking in showing, uh, uh, you know, in Lesotho, where you were, uh, huge drops in the number of new infections. Hospitals, Lesotho, the first time I went there, which was in the late 90s, had uh, four to five people, not two to three, in the bed with active opportunistic infections from HIV, largely people with TB. And the uh, 90% of them would not be diagnosed nor treated and would die. As they looked like they were going to die, the uh, hospital would send them home to die so they didn't have to deal with uh, the actual moment of death. Uh, But that pattern went on for 20 years in sub-Saharan Africa. You had in 2003 just 50,000 people who had access to antiretrovirals. But uh, these programs that allowed the responsibility for response to be shared by rich countries that had the resources that could come into countries that carried the heaviest burden to help them uh, strengthen their response and maintain it, Uh, that knowledge that we gained from that uh, extraordinary mobilization of resources uh, is now kind of congealing in your region around tuberculosis. The Indonesian numbers that we were talking about going up in Philippines, uh, the uh, understanding of uh, the responses and strengthening of them in Southeast Asia, Vietnam, Cambodia have done strong work with this for many years. Uh, Myanmar is just starting to develop a response to it. Laos, the same. But you have uh, a long-term relationship with these countries and an economic partnership that you've developed with them that really uh, positions you, perhaps, to take a leadership position, be a convener of these countries in the region, uh, to define the problem, and put a strategic plan together that allows the shared resources, not just money that's needed for sure, but also the technical talent that Australia holds and represents uh, is desperately needed in these countries to strengthen the capacity of ministries of health and civil society to mount a stronger response, to know the response that they are mounting has this impact so they understand their investments and the outcomes that they buy and see defined uh, uh, opportunities for resource infusion, for technical assistance infusion, for bringing people to Australia for training both pre and post, and for a uh, research agenda that addresses the uh, unknowns that are present in these countries, but takes the talent that has been trained in Australia to benefit those uh, in the region. And I think that opportunity is a real one. Over the next few months, year and a half, there are platforms that Australia could use uh, to concretize their commitment, uh, places to have convenings where countries are probably going to be anyway. Um, Moscow has decided to convene at a ministerial level, ministers of health uh, around TB as an issue in uh, November of this year. And then in September of next year, 2018, the UN General Assembly has already uh, decided to have a high-level meeting focusing on tuberculosis. Again, a platform for Australia to speak to what it's doing in the region.
0: Mm. Great. Well, um, we'll look forward to that. Um, I guess, lastly, I'm I'm interested in, from a sort of advocacy perspective, um, you know, what is the case that that we can make for why why Australians why the Australian public should be interested in TV and should be interested in getting government to um, to support TV, TV control and TV research?
1: Well, I guess there's the the disparity argument, the ethics of uh, knowing how to do something and not doing it. Uh, you've got to ask yourself why aren't you engaging on that? Um, and I think that that's a real um, uh, 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 problem with the current uh, disparity that tuberculosis represents uh, globally, but also in the region even more so. Uh, I think that um, we do have an obligation uh, to act if we can, and again, have to ask ourselves why we decided not to. Uh, Kind of the counterfactual needs to be kind of on the table as as a motivator in and of itself. Um, I think Australia has been sensitive to that argument historically. I think your support of the Global Fund has been exemplary of a country that gets that uh, responsibility. Uh, And this would, to me, be along those lines of thinking. People who are infected with tuberculosis can easily, on an immigration or on a a school vacation level, uh, either those going from Australia to or people there coming here, um, put a threat of infection out there. Uh, I think that uh, uh, understanding that, you know, you are part of the global community and that borders don't mean anything to these organisms is, is a real fact. Um, and I think that in epidemics that are out of control, that have not contained uh, and are widely uh, allowing people who are infectious to still remain in the general population, uh, pose that threat more uh, specifically, more rigorously uh, to your population that's not infected. So with with uh, uh, highly um, burdened countries just on your northern border, uh, it makes this, I think, more emergent, urgent. The other um, reason is uh, the Instability that people who are infected with tuberculosis represent to economies, not so much your economy, but the economies of countries that you're in economic partnerships with uh, and the workforce that is generated from them that you may benefit from as, as a country in Australia, uh, need to, you need to think about we treat it there or we treat it here. And the treating it here, waiting to treat it here, affords other risks to your community that are not there in treating it there. And I think that type of thinking uh, is part of why uh, engagement is, uh, uh, I think, in the interest of Australians. Um, I think being uh, the the first argument, being part of the global community, uh, being part of the solution because you can be. Uh, is probably uh, the stronger of the two. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Well, Dr. Busby, I want to thank you again for taking the time to have this chat. Mm -hmm. It's been really interesting. Um, Mm -hmm. And thanks also to Results for um, putting us in contact. Um, Best of luck on the the rest of your trip here. Well,
1: thanks. It's kind of you to say thanks for doing it.
0: You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea and the Pacific, and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all the latest updates or connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.